Uh, we have been working through Romans really since, I guess, last year, kind of throughout 2022 into 2023. Um, last week we were in chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. We saw Paul's description of the life life of the Christian lived in the Holy Spirit, the, the life according to the, the Spirit, right? Trusting in God who sent Jesus to fulfill the law and to die as a sacrifice to save sinners, this exhortation to set our minds on the things of the Spirit so that we can walk according to the Spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit. That was Romans 8, 1 through 11, which uh, in, a, in a very real sense was kind of the culmination of where Paul has been working uh, the entire book, right? Romans chapters 1 through 3 is about uh, our, you know, sin and guilt and condemnation and that we're accountable to God and deserving of his wrath and judgment. Romans 3 through 4, grace, salvation, the person and work of Jesus who spilled his blood, gave his life so that we could enjoy forgiveness and eternal life. Romans 5, uh, God not only saves his people, but he keeps them. He gives them assurance. The righteousness of Jesus is imputed to them, and he keeps them forever and ever. Romans 6 through 7, when God saves sinners, he not only just makes this transaction wherein he forgives them of their sin, but he gives them a new nature, a new new life to glorify God and live for him instead of being under the condemning power of sin and the, the law. That's kind of Romans 1 through 7. And then Romans 8, like we talked about uh, last week, right? Setting our minds on the Spirit, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, for the glory of God. Now, uh, chapter 12 to se- or verse 12 to 17 builds on that uh, same idea of walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, kind of unpacks a little bit more what that looks like. We're going to see a few uh, kind of points or themes as we were, kind of three uh, couplets almost, um, three kind of comparing and contrasting kind of uh, associated uh, ideas. And so verses 12 to uh, 14, we're going to see contrasted the flesh and the spirit. We'll look first at flesh and the spirit in 12 to 14, verses 14 to 16, 17-ish uh, is, uh, uh, is sonship versus slavery. So flesh and the spirit, sons or children uh, versus slaves. And then finally in verse 17, uh, suffering and glory. So uh, flesh and spirit, sons and slaves, suffering and glory is where we're going to, to work to uh, throughout the course of the, the morning. So let's read it and pray, and then let's, uh, let's get, get to work. It says, starting in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors, but not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we 
pray that you would come here this morning and and meet us and that you would uh, use your word to form us and shape and, and fashion us. We pray that you would help us to listen to it and understand it and submit to it. We pray that you would give us grace to obey it and to respond rightly to it. It's in your name that we pray. Right. So then, brothers, we are debtors. So Paul's kind of, uh, what he wants to kind of work through here is that, that the Christian is, in fact, a uh, debtor. Not, not just Christians, but all people are, are debtors. Every single human being is, in some way, in debt to someone or, or something. You might say... Not me. I'm not in debt, right? Like I paid off my student loans, paid off my credit cards. I did Dave Ramsey. I am not. I'm, I have a positive net worth. I'm not in debt. Paul is saying every single person is in debt. It's not that you, you know, are carrying some hidden credit card balance that you're not aware of, but every single human being is indebted to something or is obligated. Might be a, a, a better word is obligated to something or to someone. Proverbs 22, verse 7 says that the the debtor or the borrower is slave of the lender. So when you, if you owe something to someone, then that something, that someone has some semblance of leverage over you and they can kind of control and influence the decisions that you make and the way that you, if, if, if you, if a friend comes to you and says, I'm short on cash this month, I need money to, to, Make, pay my electric bill and to get groceries for me and my kids and you lend him money and he says I promise I'll pay you back as soon as I can and then he the next you know week before he pays you back he buys a new sports car then right you'd be like hey because there's an understanding that like you were indebted to me you owed me something and so there's a sense in which you don't have total free reign autonomy to do whatever you want and act however you want you you were a borrower and there's so there's some sense in which you are obligated to and indebted to me as the the lender so paul is saying that every single person is in some sense uh indebted to someone they are uh, a, a slave to or a servant to or obligated to to someone or something so it's not a matter of a you know am i a slave or am i not a slave um, but rather it's a matter of who am I enslaved to or who am I obligated to. Back in Romans 6, we read that, um, that every single person presents themselves as an obedient slave, either a slave to sin, which leads to death, or a slave to God, which leads to righteousness and sanctification and eternal life. So we're all debtors, we're all servants, we're all slaves, we're all obligated to something. The question is not if we are a debtor, but what are we a debtor to? And Romans 6 also makes it clear that the, the, natural, uh, the natural state, that the default posture, that the natural predisposition of the human heart is that you are not only a debtor, but you are specifically a debtor to uh, the flesh, to your, your sinful nature. A, a human being descended from Adam, you're born into, and you naturally occupy a position of slavery to and indebtedness to sin and the the flesh. So, so we have these sinful, we have these selfish desires of what I want, and we are born into the world 
at the mercy of those selfish, I want more, I want to be vindicated, I want to be seen as right, I want everyone to know how right I am, I want my way, I want other people to do what I say, I want to be exalted, I want to be respected, I, I don't want to listen and learn and be humble and kind, I just want my way all the time. Right? This is the sinful nature that we are all born into this world with and, and enslaved to and obligated to. And Paul says, every single person is a debtor, but if you are a brother, if you are a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are in fact a debtor, but you are not a debtor to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So every person, apart from God's grace in their life, is obligated to and indebted to themselves, their selfish desires that are controlling them. But if you're a Christian, you are not a debtor to the flesh to live according to the, the flesh. Right? That description of the default state of the human heart enslaved to itself and its desires is no longer true of you and does not apply to you. It was true of you, but uh, it does not because chapter 8, verse 2, we saw last week, right? The, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. We were obligated to and enslaved by sin and self. We are no longer obligated to and enslaved by sin of self. So we are debtors, but we are not debtors to the flesh. We're debtors to, I mean, the, the whole Romans 7 through 8, if you hold them side by side, the whole thing is comparing and contrasting the flesh and the spirit. Right? Uh, Romans 7 is this big description of a person trying to walk in the flesh and, and failing. Romans 8 is a person walking in the spirit and thriving. And so if we're not debtors to the flesh, then, then the implication is that we are debtors to the spirit. We have a new master to follow, the, the Holy Spirit. Walk, in a, walk according to the Holy Spirit like we saw in chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. We set our minds on the things of the Spirit like we saw in verses 1 through uh, 11. So, in, in fact, to unpack what it means to live according to the Spirit instead of the flesh and to live indebted to the Spirit instead of the flesh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 is a good place to, to start. But, um, like, for more insight... Right, beyond verses 1 through 11, which we looked at last week, for more insight into what it means to live according to the Spirit instead of according to the flesh, uh, we can look at verse 13. Right, for more insight into this dynamic between flesh and Spirit, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen, a Puritan, wrote entire book on this verse called The Mortification of Sin. And, and so verse 13 gives us insight into what it means to walk according to the Spirit because what it shows us uh, in very stark terms, in very, uh, you know, undeniable terms is that the flesh and the Spirit are opposed to one another. They hate each other. They are not in an amicable relationship where you can coexist with one another, the flesh, or you could, instead of the flesh, you could read sinful nature or selfish desires, selfish nature. The, the sin and the spirit are diametrically opposed to one another, and they are actively looking to kill and destroy one another. So if you lean into sin, walk towards sin, 
sin will kill you. But if you want to lean into the Spirit and walk toward the Spirit, you can't do so while remaining indifferent to sin because the, the way that you walk according to the Spirit is that you put to death the deeds of the, the body. So you either are killing sin or sin is killing you. It's not, you can't have an indifferent or an amicable or a coexisting kind of relationship with sin. You're either killing it or you are being killed by it. Which informs how we should interact with and, you know, deal with sin, right? sin in our own lives. Pride, lust, greed, selfishness, combativeness, impatience, entitlement, right? right? All of these sins that, that we, you know, experience in our lives, that we experience in others, but experience in our own lives, do we see these as quirks or idiosyncrasies or, you know, innocuous character traits that maybe I, you know, maybe I should should uh, do less of that, but maybe it doesn't really matter, right? It's relatively benign. I'd be better off without it, but, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Or do we see sin as like a, a dangerous, deadly, violent serial killer, right, that wants to murder us and, and destroy us and consume us? Because that's kind of how Paul understands sin. It's not benign. It's not innocuous. It is deadly and it will uh, try to kill you. Right? Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. It's worth mentioning again. Right? Genesis chapter 4. Cain Cain brings uh, an offering to God of fruit. Uh, Abel brings an offering to God of, of, uh, of an animal sacrifice. God is pleased with Abel's sacrifice. He's not pleased with Cain's sacrifice. Cain's mad. He's jealous. He's angry at, Cain, at, at Abel. He's angry at God. And God says, Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do what is righteous and godly, you will be accepted. But if you don't, sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is to have you, to consume you, to, to kill you, and destroy you. But you, Cain, you must rule over your sin. So sin is not, uh, a, you know, it's not something that you can coexist with and remain safe. Sin is there waiting to spring at you, lunge at you, jump on you, kill you, and you either need to kill it or it will kill you. I, uh, a few years ago I read, read a story about a guy who had a pet uh, tiger like a Bengal tiger, 600-pound uh, Bengal tiger. It lived with him in his house. He, was, he would regularly lobby his local government because they had, like, rules about, like, you're not allowed to have tigers live with you unless... You know, and he would, like, lobby the government to say, no, let's loosen those restrictions. And he would walk his tiger on a leash just down the street. And uh, he would hang out in the same room with his tiger. I mean, every day, for years, every day he would feed the tiger... Be in the same, he'd like watch TV with a tiger lying beside him, and his one day unexpected his tiger mauled him and killed him. And they interviewed his neighbors, and they were like, "Yeah, it's the weirdest thing. Like we, like he loved that tiger. He he was so emphatic that that tiger was a member of his family. If you like broached the if you 
suggested to him that maybe he should keep it locked up or make it to where he's not, it, it might hurt him. He would say, there's no way this tiger would ever hurt me because I've raised it. For, it thinks I'm its parent. Like, I've raised it since it was a kid, and it sees me as his parent, and the tiger killed him because that's what tigers do, right? They, they are apex predators that, like, everything in their biological every biological instinct in their body is just screaming constantly if it sees, you know, something that it is not, that's not its family member, right? Like, you know, it wants to kill and eat uh, anything. And so it doesn't matter if you feed it steak every day for its life, it, there's something that's in it that's still going to say, well, I could also eat that guy. Like, I could have the steak and eat him. And so, like, it's, it's you know, you cannot coexist with a 600-pound Bengal tiger in your home safely and, and live to, to tell about it because it's dangerous and it wants to kill you, right? Cain, uh, you know, why, why is your face fallen? Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to kill you, but you must rule over it. You must kill it. You have to put your sin to death before your sin puts you to death which it most certainly will if you walk according to the, the flesh. But it's not, just, it's not just that you have to put your, the deeds of your body, you have to put your sin to death. It's specifically that you have to put the deeds of your body to death by the Spirit. So there's a qualifier that Christians, right, on the one hand, they're not living according to the flesh, gratifying their sinful desires, and if they do, they'll die. That much is clear from this verse. But on the other hand, uh, of all of the different strategies that you could employ to put your sin to death, specifically, Paul says, employ the strategy of, of putting your sin to death by the Spirit. There are any number of strategies that people could employ to put, you know, if you go Google, like, there's no shortage of self-help books and, uh, you know, authors and influencers and podcasts about how to, you know, lose weight and how to get out of debt and how to, um, you know, uh, succeed in in business, right? There are any number of people who have employed with varying degrees of success strategies to put their sin or their selfish uh, desires to death without doing it by the Spirit. And Paul is saying that the only way to live and not die is to put your sin to death, but specifically to put your sin to death by the Spirit. So it's not white-knuckle it, try harder, polish and sanitize your life so that you can be more and more righteous. That's, that's attempting to put your sin to death apart from the Spirit. But putting your sin to death by the Spirit is exactly what we saw last week in, one, in verses 1 through 11, right? You look to Jesus, you remember his perfect life, his death, sacrifice for sin, you set your mind on the things of the Spirit through the spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible study, church attendance, and then you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to work in and, and through you and to give you grace to fight against sin. The same Spirit, Paul says, that, that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that will give you power and victory over sin. So, so put to death your sin and selfish desires and the misdeeds of the, the body, but do it specifically by the spirit instead of by your own power or by your own flesh. Verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. 
This is where Paul starts to kind of make this transition from talking about flesh and spirit in the first few verses to, to sonship and slavery in the next few few verses. He says, you know, if you are led by the Spirit, if you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, if you're doing that, then you are by definition a son of God. There's no one, right, college freshman philosophy, right, the, right, like, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. That means of all of the people who are led by the Spirit that are in this bucket, in this circle, none of them are not also in the bucket or the circle of sons of God. There's no one who's a son of God. Wait, there's no one who's led by the Spirit who is not also a son of God. Now, interestingly, the, 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 the converse is also true as well. Not necessarily uh, logically speaking, but just because of the broader context of the New Testament, right? Those who are led by the Spirit are so you, you can't be uh, led by the Spirit if you're not, if you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you. You don't have the Holy Spirit living in you if you're not a son of God, but you also are not a son of God if you are not being led by the, the Spirit of God, right? There's, there's, Paul is kind of saying there's two buckets of humanity, right? There is, there is the one who is led by the Spirit, and, and that is a son of God. There are those who are not led by the Spirit, right? A, a non-Christian, a person who has rejected Jesus, regardless of how impressive their life looks, how stable of a career and family they have, and how how much success they appear to have had in putting their selfish desires to death. A non-Christian is not a son of God, therefore does not have the Holy Spirit, therefore does not that has not cannot be being led by the the Spirit, right? So you've got those who trust Jesus, they're sons of God, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, they can be led by the Holy Spirit. Those who do not trust in Jesus, they're not sons of God, they don't have the Holy Spirit, and they are not being led by the Holy Spirit. So, the application of verse 14 then is the litmus test, right? Like, if you want to have some measure of assurance of salvation in your life, if you want to have confidence that when you die, you will stand before God and he will welcome you into his presence instead of being condemned and cast out of God's presence, if you want assurance of salvation that you are in fact secure in the arms of God, verse 14 gives you a strategy for how to derive that assurance, how to know that you are in fact a Christian, right? It, it, the, the answer to the question, right? The answer to the question, how can I know that I'm a Christian, has been answered any number of ways. How can I know that? How can I know that I'm a Christian? Well, I just, I, I am. I say that I am. I believe it in my heart. I know what I believe. No one else can tell me what I do or don't believe. I'm following what I think is right, and I say that I'm a Christian. No one can tell me otherwise not how the New Testament tells us to, you know, derive our assurance, right? How can I know that I'm a Christian? Something that happened in the past, I was baptized, I, I you know, uh, made a decision to accept Christ when I was a little child, I have a certificate that I keep in my fire safe right next to my passport and my birth certificate, and so uh, I don't go to church, I don't act like a Christian, but I have this certificate that assures me that I am one. It's not how the New Testament, right? Like, uh, how, how do I know that I'm a Christian? My parents were Christians. I was raised in a Christian family. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Well, I'm not Buddhist. I'm not, 
I'm not, you know, a Muslim, so I'm, I mean, I live in America, and the Census Bureau only gave me a couple boxes to check, so that's the, right, like, there's, there, there are any number of ways that people can answer that question, how do I know that I'm a Christian, but Paul would answer it by saying, how do you, how, if you want to know that you're a Christian, if you want to know that you're a son of God, well, it's not possible to be led by the Spirit if you are not a son of God. So if you want to know if you are a child of God, if you want to have assurance, then look at your life and ask whether or not you in your life right now are being led by the Holy Spirit. If you want to have assurance that you're a child of God, then, then you can have it if you, um, if, you can, can, if you are being led by the Spirit of God. Do you trust in Christ or do you trust in yourself? Are you setting your mind on the things of the Spirit? Right? Are you practicing the spiritual disciplines, reading God's Word, praying, in, in, attending church, investing in a biblical community? Are you neglecting those things? Right? All of these marks, all of these characteristics of a person who's led by the Spirit of God are what should give us assurance as believers that we are children of God. Are you fighting against sin? Or are you generally indifferent to, right, are you happy to indulge in sin as long as you can just manage it and keep it under control? Are you a part of a church where you've made a profession of faith to them and they have affirmed your profession of faith when you made it and welcomed you into their membership, right? All of these questions and all of these characteristics that, that mark someone who is walking, who is being led by the Spirit of God are what should give us assurance that we are children of God, not something that happened in the past, not some, uh, you know, answer to some survey, but, but whether or not we are being led by the Spirit of God in real time right now in the, the moment. Now Paul says, now that you mention it, right, because we started in verse 12 saying we're debtors, or we are obligate, we, we have an obligation, or we are servants, or we are enslaved uh, two. But he says, now, I mean, given what I said in verse 12, that we are debtors or slaves, well, now let me, let me clarify, let me kind of work out what I did and didn't mean by that, because maybe a better term than slave, there is a sense in which we are uh, enslaved to, to God. We are not our own autonomous master, but maybe a better term would be that we are sons. And he says in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So speaking of sons, let's talk for a minute about sonship, and let's compare and contrast sonship with slavery. Right? The category of slave, I mean, yeah, according to Romans 6, we saw that, that we are slaves of God, and, and it kind of gives way to righteousness and, and godliness and eternal life. So there's a sense in which we are slaves of God in the, in the Spirit. But perhaps a better, a better description would not be slaves, but it would be sons or, or children of God, rather than... Right, the, Paul's saying the, the most accurate illustration, the most accurate depiction of your relationship with God while it's true that you're a slave of God in the sense that you are not an autonomous, right, I'm the king of my, you know, I, 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 no one tells me what to do, right? I, am, I answer to no one. I am my own master. I am not a slave to anyone in any sense. Paul says that's not true because we are debtors to the Spirit. 
But what's also not true is that the most accurate primary way to illustrate or describe your relationship with God is that of a, a slave to a master. Paul says that is not the fundamental characterization of your relationship with God. If you want to understand and have insight into your relationship with God, don't look at the relationship between a master and his slave. Don't look at the relationship between a boss and his employee. Don't look at the relationship between a government and its citizens. If you want to get insight into your relationship with God, look at the the relationship between a good, godly, righteous father and his children. Look at how that man loves his kids. Look at how he feels about his kids. Look at how he protects his children from harm. Look at how he provides for them everything that they need. Take that heart of that righteous, godly father, multiply it by a million, billion, trillion, infinity, and you are starting to approach the heart of God for his people. So it's true that there's a sense in which you are a debtor and a slave to God, but the truest thing about you is not that you're a slave to God. The truest thing about you is that you are a son of God. You are a child of God. And what's the key difference between uh, a, a, how a child relates to his father and how a slave relates to his master? The key difference is, verse 15, fear. Slaves, every slave in one way or another has some, there's some modicum of fear lurking in their in their hearts imagine a family husband wife three kids and they employ a person to come clean their house you know a few times a a month and imagine some random tuesday afternoon right dad's at work mom is taking someone to soccer practice you've got the guy who comes to clean their house a few times a month and you've got the 14 year old uh, kid doing his algebra homework. And imagine the, the, the spirit, imagine what's lurking in the hearts of those two respective individuals as they are doing those two things that the, the father of the house told, instructed them to do. do. Do your homework. I want it to be done by the time I get home or else you're going to be uh, in trouble or clean the, the house. This is the, the, the arrangement that we've made and this is what we are paying you for. The guy cleaning the house in his mind is going to be kind of lurking this idea that I'd better clean this house and I'd better do a good job. They're paying me to do it and if I don't do a good job, then they're going to stop paying me. They're going to find someone else to clean their house and pay that person to clean their house instead of me. That's in their heart somewhere. That child doing the algebra homework has a, there's a, there's a, there's some sense of like respect and, and fear. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a sense of a healthy fear that I ha- if I don't do my algebra homework or if I blow it off, I'm going to be in trouble. I'm going to be disciplined. I might get grounded. But there's no fear that if I don't do my algebra homework, I'm going to stop being my father's son. The spirit of slavery is one that falls back into fear. I hope they don't fire me. They could, and I hope they don't. The spirit of sonship, the spirit of uh, adoption as sons, 
is one that rests in security and assurance that my father loves me, my mother loves me, I am their child, I am safe. We've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Abba Father is the cry of a child who is not He understands himself not to be a slave living in fear. He understands himself not to be an orphan who has no parents, but he understands himself to be a child who has parents that love him. One pastor who adopted uh, adopted a child from Russia describes this in this way. Might get emotional, I'm going to try not to. It says, uh, the creepiest... The creepiest sound that I've ever heard in my life was was total silence, nothing at all. My wife and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the for, in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips that were required for our petition to adopt our son. The orphanage staff had led us down a hallway to greet the one-year-old that we hoped would soon become our son. But the horror of the situation wasn't the squalor or the stench, although that was there. At times we had to stifle the urge to, to vomit. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home at night. I stopped and I pulled my wife's elbow and I said, why is it so quiet? This place is filled with babies, right? We compared or contrasted the stillness in this in this orphanage with the buzz that punctuated, right, with the, the, the squeals that we hear in our church nursery back at home. But here, if we listen carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth. We could hear their crib slats gently bumping against the walls. But none of the children cried because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one responds to their calls for food or comfort or love. And no one ever responded to these children, so they just stopped crying. The silence continued as we entered the boy's room. He smiled at us, but he didn't make a sound. We read him books filled with words he couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the moon, but there were never any cries or squeals or groans. Every day we came as soon as we could, and we left at the appointed time, and the entire time, all we heard was silence. And then, on the last day of the trip, My wife and I arrived at the moment that we had dreaded since the minute that we received our adoption referral. We had to tell our son goodbye. We had to tell the child we were hoping to adopt goodbye because by law we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before we could return to pick him up for good. After hugging him and kissing him with tears streaming down our faces, we walked out into the quiet hallway and that's when we heard him scream. Our son had fallen back into his crib and he just let out this guttural yell. It seemed that he knew, maybe for the first time, that his cry would actually be heard. On some primal level, he knew that he had a mother and he had a father who would hear him. That was the moment. In recognizing that he would be heard, that he went from being an orphan to being a son, and that was the moment when I became his father. So when you're a slave, there's there's fear constantly lurking. When you're an orphan, there's this knowledge, kind of latent knowledge in your soul that no one hears you, no one cares, no one's going to respond. But when you're a child, you know that you have a father, 
and you know that that Father loves you and cares for you, and that's what prompts you to cry out to God, Abba, Father. And when you do, verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So as we, right, as it, because we have this knowledge that our Father loves us, and because we cry out to Him out of confidence, knowing that our cries will be heard, then the Spirit of God then uh, applies this soothing balm to our soul that assures us, yes, your cries have been heard. Yes, you are a child of God. No, you are not an orphan. No, you are not a slave. Yes, you are a child. That's the, that's the, the role of the Spirit of God in the life of a believer is to give him assurance of knowing that the, the that God is his Father and that he is a child of God. The Spirit confirms and assures that we belong to God. So, verses 12 to 14, flesh versus the Spirit, put your sin to death lest it kill you. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verses 14 to 16, though you may be a slave of God in some sense, the truest thing about you is not that you're a slave of God. The truest thing about you is that you are a child of God and you have a Father who loves you and cares for you. In verse 17, if, if, uh, if you're a child of God, then you are also an heir of God, and you are a, a joint heir, a co-heir with Christ, a fellow heir with Christ. So Paul is saying, those people who are children of God, those people who have been adopted as sons, those people who are led by the Spirit, those people who are putting to death the deeds of the body, uh, not only can expect to live like we saw in verse 13, but they can expect to receive an, an infinite inheritance, an eternal inheritance from God. The inheritance of the believer is literally uh, God himself, right? It's not so much that you, it's, it's kind of both in, right? If you're a child of God, then you are an heir, not just of all of the things that God has that he wants to give to you, but you are an heir of God. God himself is your inheritance. The presence of God, enjoying God in his fullness for all of eternity with Jesus is the inheritance that you have to look forward to, provided that provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Flesh and spirit, sonship and slavery, suffering and, and glory, right? So you have this infinite, eternal inheritance coming to you, but in order to experience it, you have to suffer with Jesus now. You can't have one without the other. You can't have, you can't be glorified with Jesus then if you are unwilling to suffer with Jesus now. Jesus was constantly tempted with this exact thing. To, to skip past suffering, to do an end run around suffering and just jump straight to glory. When Jesus was tempted in the, the wilderness, at the beginning of his ministry, Satan offers to him all the kingdoms of the world, gratify your sinful desires with eating and, and drinking, jump off the temple so that everyone can see you and know that you're the Messiah and they'll worship you. He's, they're, they're, it's, it's the same thing. Uh, he's just saying, skip past 
the suffering that is that is in front of you now eventually you will arrive in heaven in glory with your father so skip past the suffering and go right to that right now that's how satan tempted jesus at the outset of his ministry right i mean and the temptation was still fully present at the culmination of his ministry in the garden of gethsemane before jesus is crucified he prays to his father and he says if you are willing take this make it so that i don't have to go to the cross take this cup from me and yet Jesus overcomes that temptation and says, in the end, I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. So at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, Jesus is, is confronted with temptation to bypass suffering, go around suffering, go around the cross and skip straight to eternity and glory with your father. But he didn't because he recognized this reality that I have to suffer first before I'm glorified. And Paul says, if you're following Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, you will be glorified with him. That is a a sure, indelible reality. You can sleep easy at night knowing that God will never let you go. But in the meantime, you have to suffer with him. You can't say, I trust in Jesus, and I want to, and I expect to be glorified with him in eternity, and also I'm not willing to suffer with him right now in this life. You can't say, I don't want to suffer. I shouldn't have to suffer. I don't deserve to suffer. If God is causing me to suffer, then that means that God is not good or that God is not sovereign, right? If we succumb to the temptation from Satan that we should not have to suffer, then one, we are we are foregoing the, the right to be glorified with Jesus later. But we're also, we're also positioning ourselves. We're, if, if we believe the lie from Satan that we should never have to suffer, then when suffering invariably comes into our lives, we won't be ready for it. We'll have no category for it. We'll have no theological foundation that we need to endure and to persevere through it. Which is why verse 17 is such a critically important verse for us to know and internalize now. That we will be glorified with Christ if we trust in Him and we have to suffer with Him now. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that the light and momentary troubles that we're experiencing now, present suffering, are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So present suffering, which admittedly does not feel light and momentary by any stretch, present suffering, future glory, right? And it is it is not a wonder. It's you put them on the scales and it's whatever, right? Like you put it on the scale, the future glory that we are going to experience with Jesus far outweighs, dwarfs by a million percent the suffering that we experience now. But we have to suffer now in order to experience God's glory later. And when we celebrate communion together, that's what we're remembering. That's what we are resolving to do. And that's what we are committing to do together. We're committing to suffer together 
as followers of Jesus right now in anticipation of the, the, the eternal life when we will no longer suffer, when we will be glorified with Jesus, right? We're all, when we take communion together, we're all coming together as a family and saying, I trust in Jesus, I trust in the sufficiency of his life and his death, and I am holding fast to him, and I will continue to hold fast to him until I see him. Even as I suffer in this life, I will persevere through it until it gives way to the glory of eternity. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and as often as you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus and you are a part of the people of God, then this is our opportunity to remember the gospel together, to celebrate the gospel together as a family. I'm going to pray, and uh, some guys are going to come up and, and kind of hold the elements on either side. You can come come forward down the middle, back to your seats on the, the sides. You can receive the elements. The, they're gluten-free and alcohol-free. And just take a moment to repent of your sins, to receive the grace of God, to rejoice that God has reconciled us to himself, and then eat and drink. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion because the scriptures teach against it. Uh, instead, we would invite you to take Christ and to, and to trust in Jesus and to receive the grace that he freely offers to you so that you can be reconciled to him forever. I'm going to pray. And the guys are going to come forward and lead us in music and we can come forward as we're ready to take communion. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that you have redeemed us from slavery to sin and self and given us new life in the spirit. Lord, we thank you that you have adopted us as children into your family. We thank you that you've given us a spiritual inheritance in eternity. And Lord, we pray that we could walk with you now in faithfulness and godliness. We pray that we could persevere together and suffer well together in this life until we meet you face to face. In Jesus' name that we pray.